Luke chapter Luke chapter one uh, verses twenty six through thirty eight says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she is greatly, she was greatly troubled at saying and at the saying and Try to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him, to, uh, give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How would this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And we'll stop there. There has been much debate in Christian theology over what Christians need to believe and what Christians ought to believe. There's been much debate over what is called essential and non-essential truths. <clears throat> what, what do I mean by that? Well, non-essential truths are those truths that can be budged on and that won't condemn you to hell. Let me give you an example. If one believes that babies ought to be baptized, and not just believers only, then those who are paedo-baptists will not be damned to hell. Uh, That will not get them uh, a first-class ticket to hell. They are still amongst the faith. Another non-essential truth is your viewing of the end times or the second coming of Jesus Christ. There's three positions that many hold to, whether it's uh, pre-millennialism, millennialism or post-millennialism. And depending on where you fall in those three views, and there's also another one, which is the dispensational view, but however you fall in these various views of the second coming of Christ, uh, you will not be damned to hell. You can hold to these positions and still be of the faith, and still be orthodox. Another one would be, who does Christ give the keys of the kingdom to in, in terms of church government? Who has the final say? Is it the local church, the people of the church, or is it uh, the pastor or elders? Now, we are a congregationalist uh, church. We believe that the church has the final say, but those Presbyterians who believe that uh, the elders have the final say, or um, the 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 overseeing churches have the final say. The presbytery have the final say in matters of church government. That's not going to damn them to hell. They are still of the faith. But then, on the flip side, you have essential truths, and those are the truths that a Christian has to believe, not should believe, ought to believe, but have to believe in order for them to be of the faith. A couple of examples of those are, you must believe that there is one God in three persons. There is one God who eternally exists, father-wise, son-wise, and Holy Spirit-wise. That these three persons are each God, co-equal and co-eternal, but we affirm one God. That is what you have to believe in order for you to be of the faith, in order for you to be orthodox. Another one is the deity of Jesus Christ. You have to believe that Jesus Christ is God. Not that Jesus Christ is like God or is a God, but he is God. The eternal son, the incarnate son is of the same substance. All of what it means to be God, the son has 
he shares with the Father and the Spirit. Here's another one. The virgin birth. You must believe. You have to believe. It is crucial for a Christian to believe in the virgin birth. If one budges on the virgin birth and moves away from what the church has confessed throughout the centuries, then they are no longer of the faith. They are no longer orthodox. They are no longer within bounds of what we call orthodox Christianity. Throughout the years, there's been much debate over the reliability and the theology behind the virgin birth. The, the, the validity being, well, how is it possible that a woman who has never had sexual intercourse with a man produce a baby? You see, we live in a materialistic world. We live in a, a world where people look to those in the science realm for answers. How is it possible that this one who is born is born of a virgin? And there's the other view, the theological uh, 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 objections to the virgin birth. And that is, well, Mary was a virgin after the birth of Jesus Christ. In fact, Mary was born a virgin and her mother was a virgin and her mother before that was a virgin. That makes more sense of how this one could be born from a virgin. Well, saints, this evening we want to consider the virgin birth. And what I want to do is I want, I don't want to give you the, the, the narrative or the story of the virgin birth, but I want to look at the virgin birth and just answer a few questions, theological questions that arise when we speak of the virgin birth. And to help us do that, I have two points to help us, cons- that we want to consider. And that is, what is the virgin birth? And number two, why does the virgin birth matter? Number one, what is the virgin birth? And number two, why does the virgin birth matter? And saints, uh, before we look at our first point, I want to challenge you this evening, and I know it's uh, many of you have uh, ate and took your naps, and you are nice and cozy right now in an air conditioning room, but I want to challenge you to, to think with me to think about these issues when we speak about the virgin birth. And a lot of things that we are going to say this evening are questions that you may have not thought of before, but they're theological questions that need to be asked and they need to be answered. So I challenge you, saints, to think with me. We'll think together and let's examine this this wonderful, miraculous uh, birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the first point, uh, what is the virgin birth? What is the virgin birth? And like a typical fashion, before we answer what is the virgin birth, we must do some negative theology and ask what the virgin birth is not. So when we approach a doctrine, it's good to ask what the virgin birth or what the doctrine does not say to remove all the false beliefs, all the false impurities uh, that is believed when we approach a doctrine. So what the virgin birth is not, what do we not mean when we say the virgin birth. Well, first is we don't mean and we don't believe in the immaculate conception of Mary. We don't believe in the immaculate conception of Mary. And many of you who come from Roman Catholic backgrounds will understand and know this doctrine very well. And what the immaculate conception of Mary says is Mary was preserved free from all stain of original sin. That Mary was preserved free from all original sin. In other words, Mary was free from the guilt and sin of Adam. In other words, Mary was not born in Adam. Mary's federal head is not Adam. Mary had no original sin. Mary was sinless. Mary was sinless. Since Christ was sinless, and here's the logic behind it, since Christ was sinless, then Mary must have been sinless herself. How can this one be uh, give birth to one who is sinless if the one who give birth is not sinless herself. It doesn't make any sense that many people would object or would say. And saints, we must uh, dogmatically, we must emphatically deny the immaculate conception of Mary. 
When one brings up the Immaculate Conception of Mary, you must hear them out and then bring to them the Bible and then slay their arguments to pieces. We must dogmatically deny this heretical. And when I say heretical, this is just because the Roman Catholics believe this doesn't mean that it's orthodox. It is not of the faith that that Mary was sinless. That is, she is not in Adam or not born in Adam. This belief of Mary being sinless must be rejected for a multitude of reasons. But let me give you two. The first is it's unbiblical. And we should actually stop there. Mary being sinless is unbiblical. Nowhere in the Bible does it speak of Mary being free from all stain of original sin. Nowhere in the Bible does it say Mary is not in Adam. Although she bore the Christ, Mary was a sinner. Mary was fallen in Adam. She was depraved, just as depraved as you and I. Romans 3, uh, 32, the Apostle Paul tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And those saints who, uh, who are into those Calvinism and Arminian debates, uh, in this text, all means all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul makes it clear that all of mankind are sinners in Adam. There is no one exempt from Adam's fallen uh, state. And to say that Mary was free from original sin is to go against the plain and clear teaching of Scripture. The second reason why we must reject this doctrine is because there has only been one. There has only been one who has ever been truly sinless. There has only been one who has been free from the sin of Adam and not been born of Adam. And that is the one who Mary gave birth to, Jesus Christ. Christ was born and lived a sinless life. And to say his mother Mary was just as sinless as her son was, himself, Jesus Christ, is to elevate Mary to a position that the Bible knows nothing of. Is to elevate Mary and give Mary some sort of pedestal that Mary herself would object to. I'm sure Mary herself would say, I am sin. I am born of sin. In, in sin, my mother did conceive me. I am not sinless, but but the one whom I gave birth to, my Lord and my God, Jesus Christ, he is the one who is truly sinless. Secondly, when we say the virgin birth, what do we not mean? We don't believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. We don't believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. Another Roman Catholic belief that says Mary was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Jesus Christ. Before during and after the birth of Jesus Christ, according to Roman Catholic theology, Mary was not only a virgin at the conception and birth of Jesus, but remained a virgin throughout her entire life. Here's what the Catechism of Catholic Church of the Catholic Church says: the deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the Church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity, even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's uh, virginity, but rather sanctified it. Saints, again, we must reject dogmatically this heretical doctrine, for it is not based off of the biblical data or the biblical witness of Scripture. And we see from Scripture that Mary had other children. Jesus was not simply the, the only child from Mary. So to say that Mary was a virgin at Jesus' conception, was she was, but then remained a virgin throughout her entire life, raises too many problems and too many questions when we consider the other children Mary have. Hear this, saints. Uh, this is what one Catholic catechism reads. The perpetual virginity of Mary, hear this, is not revealed truth which can clearly be demonstrated from the, Holy, from the New Testament without the light of tradition. Meaning you can't read the New Testament and, and, and clearly come to the conclusion that Mary was a virgin after the birth of Jesus Christ and throughout her entire life. But that must be accompanied with church tradition. And many of you know that the Catholic Church sees church tradition on par with the Holy Scripture. And, and that's a little loose. Not on par, but above Scripture. 
that whatever the church says, the church believes and it's on par and it's above scripture. Saints, scripture is the only authoritative rule of faith and life for the Christian uh, life. And we are not to look to uh, our catechisms. We are not to look to our confessions of faith as orthodox as they may be. If, 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 if our confession of faith is saying something that the clear, that the scriptures are not clearly speaking, that we must throw out that confession of faith. And you can see, saints, how these beliefs can, uh, uh, creep into the church when the church wants to make sense of the virgin birth. And I'm gonna say this, I'm gonna say this right out, that the virgin birth is a mystery. It is a miraculous miracle, but it is a mystery nonetheless. We are to confess it, we are to adore it, but we aren't to ask questions that that turn this orthodox belief into something that it's not. We must confess what the church has held on to, the right church, the true church, has held on to throughout the centuries. Both the Immaculate Conception of Mary and the perpetual virginity of Mary is driven by an unbiblical allegiance to church tradition. We must hold on to church tradition, but that must not be our allegiance. Our allegiance is the Bible and the Bible alone. Church tradition helps us, but is subordinate to the Holy Scriptures. So what do we mean, saints, when we speak of the virgin birth? What do we mean? Well, it's simply this. The virgin birth is simply this. The Virgin Mary, by the power of the Holy Spirit, miraculously gave birth to the God-man, Jesus Christ. One more time. The Virgin Mary, by the power of the Holy Spirit, miraculously gave birth to the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, it's easy to say, but it's very hard to break down and to consider. But when we say that, when we speak of the Virgin Birth Saints, there are a number of questions that arise. There are a number of issues, theological questions that we must answer. And the first question is this. How did Mary, being a virgin, give birth to Jesus? Simple question, right? How did Mary, being a virgin, give birth to Jesus Christ? Mothers in here know that no one can have a baby unless another is present to give them a baby. So how did this one, who has never had one who was present to help her produce and make a baby, have a baby? In fact, many who reject the virgin birth do so based off of science and the laws of nature alone. How can one who has never had sexual intercourse have a baby? And saints, this is why the church has long said that the virgin birth is a miracle. It's a true miracle that defies all scientific explanations and human reasonings. We can apprehend the virgin birth, but we cannot comprehend the virgin birth. Virgin uh, Mary was truly a virgin, and she truly gave birth to a child. And saints, we aren't to think that Mary suddenly became pregnant, and then a few hours later gave birth. She didn't go from month one to nine, as many of you women who are pregnant uh, or espoused to be pregnant, hoping that what happened to you, that you, 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 you urinate on that little uh, stick. It says that you're pregnant. And then nine months, you know, in an hour, you're nine months already developed. And in an hour after that, you go to the hospital. But it's a process. You go from month one to month nine. Same thing with Mary. Mary went a full term in her pregnancy. She was truly pregnant with our Lord. She didn't go from month, month one, uh, month one to month nine in a short span, but she was just as pregnant as other women are pregnant. Mary probably had morning sickness, as many women have before. Her feet probably would swell. Her, her back might hurt. She would probably have cravings. She would throw up in the morning. Mary had all the symptoms of one who is pregnant? Jesus Christ, the God-man, really and truly grew in the womb of Mary. So let's return to the question. Since Mary was a virgin, how did she become pregnant? Since Mary is a virgin, how did she become pregnant? Luke 1, verse 34 through 37 tells us, after the angel had told Mary that she would bear a son, um, 
It says in verse 34, Mary says, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? How, how will I be pregnant since I am a virgin? The, the angel says this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, uh, to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Herman Boving says, from this it is evident that the activity of the Holy Spirit with respect to this conception hear this, did not consist in the infusion of any heavenly or divine substance in Mary, but a demonstration of power that made her womb fertile in the act of overshadowing her as with a cloud. God did not infuse the womb of Mary with his divine substance, but rather the Holy Spirit powerfully overshadowed Mary. Just it hovered over Mary, just as uh, the Holy Spirit in that first creation hovered over the waters of the deep. In this new creation, the Holy Spirit hovers over the womb of Mary and gives birth or makes the womb of Mary fertile and produces a baby. This cloud is also can be also referenced to uh, the glory cloud that is prominently seen in the old testament where we have the glory cloud in the old testament and when we see this glory cloud what is usually accompanied with it the presence of god the presence of god god is with his people well it's fitting that the holy spirit the glory cloud will come upon the womb of mary for represents that god has come finally amongst his people the god man jesus christ it is the Holy Spirit that works supernaturally to conceive in Mary, hear this, the human nature of the eternal son. The virgin conception of Jesus did not come by and originate by the will of man. Rather, the conception of Christ is a divine work that originates in God. Joseph had no say or work in this conception, but this originates in God. Jesus was not conceived in Adam but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that does not mean that Jesus is the son of the Holy Spirit. We aren't to think that. He is conceived in Adam. The Holy Spirit overshadows the womb of Mary, but that doesn't mean that Jesus is the son of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that creates the human nature of the God-man, Jesus Christ. You can call the Holy Spirit the master builder for his responsibility for it was for the actual formulation of the human nature of Christ in the womb of Mary. That's what his, that's what his role was in the, in the incarnation, in the birth uh, and conception of Jesus Christ. He was the master builder. He would form the human nature of the God man, Jesus Christ. As other theologians would say, he was the one who made a temple where God would dwell. James Usher speaks of Mary's womb as the bride chamber. Where this, and hear this, this is beautiful. Where the spirit knit that, uh, where the spirit knit that indissoluble knot between our human nature and his deity. The Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary knit that indissoluble knot between our human nature, the substance of Mary, and the divinity, the deity of Christ. Christ is from the substance of Mary. It was Mary, human nature, that the Holy Spirit used to bring forth the human nature of Jesus Christ, the God-man. But saints, we aren't to think that the incarnation is an act performed solely by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is the one that acts alone in the virgin birth, but the work of the incarnation is a triune work. For the Father, as Hebrews 10.5 tells us, prepares the body and soul for the son. In other words, the father ordained, formed, and prepared a sinless body for our Lord. The son voluntarily and willingly assumes a human nature. He takes on all the requirements of the covenants that he made with his father, and that one requirement being he must take on flesh. And the spirit in the womb of Mary unites the human and divine nature of the one person, Christ. The incarnation is a triune act. The one who is formed in the womb of Mary is the God-man, 
Jesus Christ. Which begs another question, which was a big debate in the early church, and that is, is it proper to call Mary the mother of God? What do you think, saints? Should we call Mary, and don't look to Antonio because we already had this conversation, but <laughs> should we call Mary? Is it proper to call Mary the mother of God? Or as the older uh, boys would say, the Theotokos, the God-bearer. Is it proper to call Mary the mother of God? Or should we refer to Mary as the mother of Christ, the Christ-bearer? Mother of God or mother of Christ? God-bearer or Christ-bearer? Well, if you've said that we should call Mary the Christ-bearer, the mother of Christ, then you're in error. It is improper to call Mary the mother of Christ, but rather it is proper and orthodox to call Mary the mother of God, the God-bearer. It is proper and orthodox to call Mary and give Mary this title of God-bearer. Now, you might say, how is this possible? What do we mean when we say Mary is the mother of God or is the God-bearer? And first, let's answer what it doesn't mean. What do we, what do we don't mean when we say Mary is the mother of God? Well, when we say that Mary is the mother of God, we don't mean that Mary is the mother of God and predates God. Okay? That Mary comes before God or that Mary gives birth to the Trinity. We don't mean when we say Mary is the mother of God that Mary is the mother of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not what we mean. Nor do we mean that Mary is co-eternal with God. Or that God had a beginning when we speak of Mary as the mother of God. When we affirm Mary is the Theotokos, the mother of God, we are not articulating in any way that the divine nature was brought about through Mary. The divine nature was not brought about through Mary. The divine nature of the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son, Jesus Christ, has always existed. It predates Mary. When we say Mary is the mother of God, we are not saying that Mary brought about God, that God is from the substance of Mary. So what do we mean? When we say Mary is the mother of God, we are saying Mary is the mother of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And this is where we really have to wake up here because we're going to get into some really deep stuff. When we say Mary is the mother of God, we are saying Mary is the mother of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Let's break this down. Why, why must we affirm this, saints? Well, m- many who deny Mary as the mother of God, they give these reasonings. That Mary only gave birth to the human aspect of Jesus. Or they say Mary gave birth to the human nature of Jesus, but not the divine nature of Jesus. So Mary only gave birth to the human aspect and the human nature of Jesus, but not the divine nature. And after Mary gives birth to the human nature, the divine nature comes down from heaven and enters that one person. When we think of the virgin birth saints, here's a problem with that. No one gives birth to human natures. No one gives birth to human natures. Mothers give birth to human persons who have human natures. But no one, no mother gives birth to a human nature. Mary didn't give birth to the human nature of Jesus Christ, which she did. But we have to distinguish. But, uh, human natures in and of themselves are not human persons. You can't have a human nature without there being a human person. What is your human nature? Humanity. Your humanity is accompanied with your person. So you have your person, and then with your person, you have your nature, humanity. When your mother gave birth to you, she gave birth to a person that had a human nature, not a human nature in and of itself. She didn't give birth to humanity. She gave birth to a person that possesses humanity. Friends, in simple terms, a nature doesn't have a mother. A person with a nature has a mother. And if we say that Mary only gave birth to the human nature of Christ, then we are treating Christ's human nature as a, as a human person. You see what I did there? 
When we say that Mary only gives birth to the human nature of Christ, we're treating Christ's human nature as if it's a human person. And what do we do then? Then we confess that Mary gave birth to two persons with two natures. But the Orthodox confession of the church has always been, there's been one Christ, one person with two natures. Mary gives birth not to two people, but one person who has a human nature and a divine nature. Not just the human nature, but a divine nature. And in Mary's womb, from months one to months nine, God was in the womb with, with Mary. As, as, as we've read, the, the Holy Spirit knit together the, the deity and the humanity of that one person, Jesus Christ. So saints, it is orthodox when we confess that Mary is the mother of God. For Jesus is not two persons, but he is one person with two natures. Mary does not give birth to the human nature of Christ. She gives birth to the person of Christ with two natures. To confess mother, to confess Mary as the mother of God protects the true humanity of Christ, but also protects the true deity of Christ. And saints, when we say Mary is the mother, is the mother of God, when we say that she is the God bearing, we're saying more about Jesus rather than Mary. We are not elevating Mary and putting her on some tartar pedestal as the Roman Catholics and the, the Eastern Orthodox Church has. They've taken Mary being the mother of God and they ran with it. But rather, we say Mary is the mother of God, which points to the true humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. That's why we must affirm Mary is the mother of God. When we are saying Mary is the mother of God, we are saying that the one who was in Mary's womb was indeed very God of very God and very man of very man. This one. He wasn't simply a finite human, but also in the womb of Mary was the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son. And last, and last question that arises when we speak of um, uh, the virgin birth, um, or not the last question, but another question that arises when we speak of the virgin birth is since Jesus Christ, the God-man, was born of a woman, how was he born sinless? Since Jesus Christ is born of a woman, how is he born sinless? Since uh, we know that every man and woman are born in Adam, how was Jesus Christ born without a sin nature? Quote, unquote. How doesn't Christ have a sinful nature if he's born from a sinful woman? It doesn't make any sense. There are some scholars that believe that it was necessary for Jesus Christ to assume a fallen nature. T.F. Torrance, who's an advocate for this view, says, If Jesus Christ did not assume our fallen flesh, our fallen humanity then our fallen humanity is untouched by his work, for the unassumed is unredeemed. If Jesus Christ did not assume our fallen humanity, then our fallen humanity is not taken care of, for the unassumed is unredeemed. So let me give you a few reasons why this belief is untrue and demonstrate how Jesus was born of a woman without sin. Number one, a fallen incarnation a, a Jesus Christ being born with a fallen nature is unbiblical. It's unbiblical to say that Jesus Christ was born with a fallen nature. Simply put, the Bible nowhere teaches that Jesus had to assume a corrupt nature in order to redeem us from our corrupt nature. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that. When Paul speaks of Christ born in the likeness of men and being found in human form in Philippians 2, he's referring, he's referring to our common nature, what it means to be human, Jesus Christ assumed. In other words, all of what it means to be human, Christ assumes. Now, this is all going to tie in in a minute, but Christ takes on our common infirmities, yet without sin. The second reason why Christ was born without a sin nature is because there is no such thing as a sin nature. This is very important for many of you who speak of, yeah, I'm, I, got, I still got my sin nature. You don't have a sin nature. You have a human nature. There's no such thing as a sinful or sin nature. Let me give you a reason. <clears throat> but first, let me define our terms. When I say nature, what do I mean by that? I mean that which makes up who you are. That which makes up who you are. Or that of which you are composed of. That is a nature. That which you are composed of. In other words, a nature is what makes you human. 
Your humanity is what makes you human. When you ask, what is a man? What is mankind? Our response is never body, spirit, image of God, sin. Because if we say, if we say body, spirit, image of God, sin, then what are we saying about the first creation? What are we saying about God when he said, when he made man and he looked and he, and he said, very good. If it was very, if, 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 if sin was essential to a human nature, then how can God call his creation of man good? It doesn't make any sense. Sin is not essential to our humanity. Sin is not essential to our humanity. Sin is a moral condition. It's what our corrupt nature does. It's not what it is. Let me say that one more time. Sin is what our corrupt nature does. It's not what our corrupt nature is. Richard Barcelo says, sin is not a nature, not a thing that takes up space in us. It is the deprivation of righteousness with its corresponding effects. That's a wonderful way of summarizing this. That sin, uh, uh, that this nature that we have is a deprivation of righteousness with its corresponding effects. In other words, what does a human nature do that is not upright and righteous? It sins. That's what a human nature does when it's not righteous. When it's, when it's, when it's a, when it's a loss of righteousness. When it's deprived from righteousness. It sins. Because of our human nature being corrupted, it therefore sins. It serves sins rather than God. So to say Christ is born without a sinful nature or with a sinful nature is wrong. For Christ was born in this fallen world, but not with, but not, but he was not fallen himself. We aren't to say that Christ uh, assumed our corrupt nature. Thirdly, Christ is born sinless because he is not born of ordinary generation. Christ is not sinless, or Christ is born sinless because he is not born of ordinary generation. Meaning Christ is not born in the ordinary ways that people are born. He doesn't have Joseph's DNA or, or uh, he doesn't have Joseph's blood running through his veins. But also, since Christ was born of a virgin, the sin of Adam that's passed on from man to man is not attributed to Christ. Question, saints. And this is quite another question arises. Is it proper to call Joseph the father of Christ? If, if, if Joseph's DNA, if his blood is not running through Christ... Is it proper to call Jesus or Joseph the father of Christ? Well, as the older boys have said, we must distinguish. It is proper to call Joseph the father of Christ with respect to the legal and earthly terms. And with legal and earthly terms, he was legally the father of Jesus Christ. But in an ultimate sense... Joseph was not the father of Christ, for Joseph had no say. Jesus did not come about by the will of Joseph, but Jesus Christ came about, came about through the will of God. He originates in God, not originates in Joseph. Here's another question. How can Jesus Christ, how can Jesus Christ, who is a man, uh, uh, be a man if he has no biological father? I know these are weird questions, but these are important questions. Jesus Christ is a man. He's not from Joseph, though. But how does he have, or how, how is he a man if he has no biological father? In order for there to be a man, there has to be an XY chromosome. But there's only an XX chromosome in Jesus Christ. So how is he a man? The answer is a miracle, which sums up, the virgin birth itself. That at some point when we dissect the virgin birth and ask all these theological questions, we come to this place where we throw up our hands and we just worship Christ. This is a miracle. We don't know how this one who is not from man is a man. But we do know that this one who is from woman, who is the seed of the woman, the promised one, is the Messiah that was to come to crush the serpent's head. That this one who was born of the woman was truly human and truly God. Saints, I hope that those questions helped spark a new interest 
when we speak of the virgin birth, that the virgin birth is more than just a narrative, but has deep theological questions that accompany it. Questions that we must answer. The sinlessness of Christ. How is he sinless? Uh, is it proper to call Mary the mother of God? How, how is Jesus Christ born of man if he has no biological father? You know, uh, another question that I didn't get to that I have on here, but it's could Mary, could have Mary given birth to the Father or the Holy Spirit? Why is it the second person of the Trinity that Mary gave birth to? Let me give you an answer. Because the second person of the Trinity, what is his personal property? What makes the Son distinct from the Father and the Spirit? He's eternally begotten. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father. The Father is the begetter of the eternal begotten one. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the, and the uh, Son. So it is fitting that the one who is eternally begotten would be the one who is begotten by a woman. You guys can think about that a little later. Um, let's, let's now move on to our, sec- our last point, and that is, why does the virgin birth matter? Why does the virgin birth matter? Why should we believe in the virgin birth? Uh, why should we confess this? Here are a couple of reasons. Number one, it matters for our salvation. The virgin birth matters for our salvation. If Christ had been tainted with sin, that is, if he was born in Adam under the curse of sin, then he could have not been our sufficient sacrifice. Simply put, if Christ was tainted with sin and not born of a virgin, if he was not truly sinless, then he would not be our sufficient sacrifice. On the other hand, if Christ had not been born of Mary, if he did not assume a real, true human nature, he could have not been a suitable sacrificial substitute as a man for men. We needed one to come as man to redeem us, to redeem mankind. Cyril of Alexandria says this, and, he's, and, it's, and this is a beautiful quote, if he conquered as God, to us it is nothing. But if he conquered as man, we conquered in him. We needed one who was truly man in order for mankind to be redeemed. We needed a perfect man to live for us. We needed a perfect man to offer up a sacrifice of sins. And the doctrine of the virgin birth tells us that Christ was truly man. He took on flesh and became like us, yet without sin. Second reason why the virgin birth matters is because it it uh, it affirms the truthfulness and authority of Scripture. It affirms the truthfulness and authority of Scripture. If we deny the virgin birth, then we are denying the inerrancy of the Bible. Meaning, the inerrancy meaning the Bible is without error. The infallibility of the Bible, the Bible is incapable of error, of making an error. And if we deny the virgin birth, then we are saying that there is errors in the Bible. That the Bible is not authoritative, that it is not true. Saints, we must not budge on this doctrine. We must wholeheartedly, as mysterious as it may be, we must confirm the virgin birth. One theologian has said, if we do not hold to the virgin birth, despite the fact that the Bible asserts it, then we have, compre- then we have compromised the authority of the Bible. And there is, in principle, no reason why we should hold to its other teachings. Thus, rejecting the virgin birth has implications reaching far beyond the doctrine itself. Meaning, if you deny the virgin birth, then you might as well throw all the other doctrines along with it. You might as well deny the true humanity and the true deity of Christ. You might, you might as well deny the, the truthfulness, the inerrancy, the infallibility of the Holy Scriptures. If we deny that the, that, uh, uh, Christ was truly born of a virgin, then we are denying all the other essential truths of the Christian faith. We are denying that the miracles are impossible. We are denying that the history of the Bible, and mind you, saints, the virgin birth is deeply historical. Read the records from Matthew to Mark to Luke, and you'll find historical records of the virgin birth, uh, uh, real names, real locations, real people. Real. This was a real event, a historical event that was truly a miracle. The virgin birth explains saints. Another reason why uh, we, we must believe in the virgin birth, and, the, and it's the virgin birth makes sense 
of how Jesus Christ was truly God and truly man. The virgin birth makes sense and explains the true, how, how Jesus Christ was truly God and truly man. The incarnation in and of itself is a profound mystery of the Christian faith. This one person who unites him with himself to a, a one nature, one nature he already possesses in himself, that is deity, but uniting a human nature in himself. This human nature does not mix. We cannot distinguish them. They harmonize with one another. Profound mystery. But this, the, the virgin birth makes sense of, of this deep, profound uh, mystery of the incarnation. If Jesus Christ had not been born of a human, we cannot believe in his full humanity. It was necessary that Jesus was born of a human woman. And likewise, if the birth of Jesus was like any other birth, meaning if Jesus Christ was born through the sexual union of a man and a woman, then how would we believe in his deity? It just wouldn't make any sense. The virgin birth is essential to the Christian faith for it secures that one confession that we all must hold to, one Christ with two natures. Let me give you uh, two more. The virgin birth is essential for it fulfills prophecy. It fulfills prophecy. And saints, we see this prophecy of the coming Christ begins in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise his, uh, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This prophecy of the seed that will come, that will crush the serpent's head is the driving force behind all the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 2. But there will be no more gloom for those who are in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and beyond the land, uh, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. In verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. We drop down to verses 6 through 7. The prophecy reads, For us a child is born. For to us a child is born. For to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of the peace there should be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Saints, the Old Testament pointed forward to the time when God would become man, when God would finally dwell with his people, take on human flesh. If one denies the virgin birth, then saints, it would be impossible to properly interpret various Old Testament verses that speak of the birth of Jesus Christ. You would undermine all the biblical theology. And I don't want to steal uh, Pastor Antonio's thunder, but you will deny all the biblical theology of these women that we read throughout the Old Testament who are barren. These women who are barren, and it seems that the seed is being compromised, that the seed of the woman will not be, a, will be brought about. If you deny the virgin birth, then what do you say about prophecy? What do you say about biblical theology? What are you saying about the whole overall story of the Bible, of this coming Christ, this coming seed? And lastly, saints, why is the virgin birth uh, necessary to believe? The virgin birth matters for the entirety of the Christian life. The virgin birth matters for the entirety of the Christian life. Saints, everything we do as a church is fundamentally grounded on the birth of Jesus Christ. Everything we do. I preach to you with full confidence in everything that I say is true because of the virgin birth. Because of Jesus Christ, this one who was born 
We worship and praise God because of the virgin birth, because of the birth of Jesus Christ and all that it details. You see, saints, the virgin birth, the birth of Jesus Christ, heralds to the world that God has come down with his people. It tells the world that God has come in the midst of his people and has taken on their common infirmities, yet without sin. The birth of Christ says to sinners that reconciliation has come. It says to God-haters that God has come in the likeness of men to rescue them. And it says to all those who were in Adam, the last Adam, the better Adam has come. Friends, the virgin birth is more than a story of a baby being born, of one who has never had sexual intercourse. But it's a story about uh, salvation. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of rescue. It's about the new covenant and the kingdom of God. It's about our eternal rest and the new heavens and a new earth. Saints, this is why the virgin birth matters. And as we close, we are to marvel and worship our God and his Christ. We are to marvel at Christ, for never in history has one come from such a high place and stooped down to such a low place. This one whom uh, Isaiah says sits on his throne, comes down, and is a baby who is swaddled, who's born in a manger where the donkeys lay. This one who comes down and, and, and touches our human nature. As the great Puritan uh, Thomas Goodwin was said, heaven kisses earth in the incarnation. We are to confess this, saints, and we are to believe this, and we end with a quote from Thomas Watson on the virgin birth, a wonderful quote, a fitting quote, and he says, Christ was born of a virgin that we, may, that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in the manger that we might lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven. And what was this all? And what was this all but love? Meaning, what do we say this is? This is love. If our hearts be not rocks, this love of Christ should affect us. Behold, love that surpasses knowledge. Let's pray.